Some of you um, got to hear from Mark back when he was here this summer during the First Samuel series. Uh, Mark was with Wycliffe Bible Translators in Africa, and when he came home from that service, he started memorizing, he started memorizing uh, Second Timothy in the Bible, and really, really was moved and blessed and helped by it, and so he's since memorized 13 books of the Bible, and he's trying to finish memorizing um, the book of Luke by the middle of this summer. So uh, we invited him to come and do this portion today. If you don't have Luke memorized, um, you, ca- you actually can not open a Bible and just listen because the Bible was actually written to be read out loud to listeners more than to be read. I don't know if you know that, but that's the style of literature it is. So you can just listen and pay attention, or you can find it on page 1562 of your Bible. In the 15th year, the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, and Herod, being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the regions of Itchrea and Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went out throughout the whole region of the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. Behold, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh will see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. (laughs) The crowds asked him, what then should we do? He said to them, Everyone who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized by him and asked him, Teacher, what should we do? He said to them, Collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what we, what should we do? He said to them, Extort money from no one by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and everyone was questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, he answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Behold, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other words, he continued to exhort the people and proclaim the good news to them. 
But Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by John for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil that Herod had done, added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people had been baptized, and Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove, and there came a voice from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Thanks, Mark. So uh, sometimes on this Sunday, the Sunday before Easter, often uh, celebrated as Palm Sunday, um, people will like show up back at church. You know, they'll be like, hey, we should go to church. We haven't been going to church for a while. And this happened to me like when I was a kid. We would like not go to church for like five or six months, or whatever. My mom would, about this time of year, my mom would be like, man, I need, we need to go to church. And so we'd go to church. And so here, here's what I want to tell you. Commit in your hearts, in your minds right now, you're going to come for six weeks. Because like something's going to happen, and like you're going to get mad at your spouse next week, and you'll be like, I don't want to go to church with all those people. Listen, you've got to come enough times in a row to make a habit, feel like you're getting something out of it, meet some people, and really start to feel like what God is going to do in your life by being part of the community of Jesus and going through the stuff and worshiping and hearing preaching and all that stuff. So just commit. Does that make sense? You don't have to, but I'm just saying. If what normally happens is something will sneak in there and like get you out of rhythm. And you got to like take that thing by the throat. You know what I'm saying? Okay. So this, this last year, 2017, as a church, we spent the whole year talking about what it means to have spiritual substance. To really seek to be godly like Jesus, to grow in holiness, right? And th there's strength in that. And that's what God made us. That's what we're saved for. We're saved from our sins, but we're saved for being conformed to the image of Christ, right? And then this year we talked about, well, okay, what is the fuel of that? Like, that's hard to have courage in every moment to walk with the Spirit and to walk like Christ. That's hard to do. What is the fuel that goes in that engine? And the Bible teaches that that fuel is joy. And we talked about how the Old Testament is really clear about that. For example, God gave the Jewish people um, something like 76 celebration days. About 75 of them were celebrations of joy. They were parties. They were huge festivals. In fact, part of the tithe, the 10% you had to give to God, about two-thirds of that was spent on the parties. Okay? That's crazy. And then one day a year was mourning and fasting over our sin and our rebelliousness against God and re-receiving his forgiveness. Because God always wanted to give his people joy. He's always wanted his people to be fueled by joy. Because listen, joy is the only thing in the world more powerful than fear and hatred, which are the main motivations of human beings. Joy is the only thing strong enough. Love isn't. You need joy to motivate love so that it can overcome the fear and hatred that's inside of you. Understand? So this year we've been talking about joy, and we talked about joy in the festivals. But one of the things the Bible says really clearly is that the kind of joy that is that strong to be the fire and the engine of spiritual substance really is the joy that is connected to the glory of God, the beauty of God himself and what he's done in Christ and what he's doing in you and us together. And that glory, that beauty in Christ can create a joy sufficient to what it really, it really takes to have joy 
in all circumstances, right, to grow in spiritual substance and to really be a blessing to all people. Does that make sense? Now, um, in fact, the angels said in Luke's gospel that that was the right emotional response to good news. That the, the, the right emotional response to the good news of God is great joy, right? He comes to the shepherds, and these are third shift shepherds. They're not rich people. These are not people who are like, hey, my life is great, right? Other than they get to be outside, which is kind of cool. But they come to them and they say, listen, this, this good news of this Christ who is Lord who's come to you, this is going to be for great joy for everyone, for all the people. And as we talked about this, the, the main adult character in the first two chapters of Luke's gospel is Mary, until Jesus sort of takes over. And so Mary is the sort of like most godly figure among the human beings. And two, in two places it says that when people saw Jesus and were beginning to see him for what he was as this very special child, it says that she didn't let that stuff pass her by, but she, she treasured those things in her hearts. And the second one it says, she treasured them up and she pondered them. Right? That's her, that was her inward response, and the shepherds show the right outward response, that they went away glorifying and praising God, right? So the inward response is to treasure and to ponder. The outward response is to, like, glorify and be happy in God, right? But you could ask this question. You could say something like, um, Nick, why, like, why do we need to ponder these things? Why do you think pondering on the good news of the gospel and of Christ will actually produce great joy, right? And Part of the reason for this is because we're not the kind of creatures that we always receive good news as good news, right? Charles Simeon, who was um, a pastor in Cambridge in the 1700s, who was single all his life, right? He, sa- he, he said, um, the human heart, what the Bible calls the flesh, the human heart has this, at least three obstacles to the good news that are bound up in the flesh. The pride of conceit, I don't want to be told I'm wrong. The habitual lusts, what he called inveterate lusts or passions, right? Passions and desires to do whatever we want that we know are not in keeping with what God wants from us or made us for, that we don't want to stop doing, and that are already habitual and would be really, really hard to change. And our tendency to despair and gloom, that when we hear good news, we go, nah, I can't be true. That's too good to be true. I don't believe that. And that most human beings suffer from all three of these, a couple more than the others. They're like the opposite of love languages, right? And because of that, there's a lot of good news that when, when it hits us, it doesn't feel like good news. It actually feels terrifying, and it makes us furious. That's our natural response to it. Let me give you a, like a quick example. Imagine like there's a single mom, and she's got a seven-year-old boy, and she meets a guy who's like a really great guy. Let's say his name is Jim, Okay. And so Jim and this lady date for a while, and they decide to get married. And so the mom tells this boy, Eric, we'll call him Eric, um, hey, you know, Jim and I are going to be getting married, right? And he, she doesn't say much more than that. So, the, so Jim's like driving Eric home from baseball or something. He's like, now, Eric, I want you to understand that, you know, when your mom and I get married, it's going to change our relationship over time. Like I've, so far, I've just been her boyfriend, so I've just been a buddy. Like I've, I've tried to have a good time, took you fishing, we did some fun stuff together, but over time, I'm going to be a husband to your mom and more of a father to you, which means it's going to be my job not just to, like, encourage you, but to call you up into honorable manhood. And that's, that has both encouraging and correcting and stuff, and it's going to be 
it's going to be a little more difficult than our relationship has been. Now you can imagine this kid, right, how he would respond to that. Like he's going to be like terrified. Like what does that mean? How, how stern is he going to be? Like what does it look like to call me up and down? Right? And he's like angry. Like who do you think you are? You think you're my father? What do you think? You think, right? Like you can picture like he could be very upset even though Jim's a great guy and this is really good news. Do you understand? And the gospel is kind of like that for us. And so this character, John, comes along, and he, he's, he's preparing the way for the Lord. And he's telling people what they need to be prepared for the salvation of God. And it turns out the gospel is the kind of good news that is very prone to make you angry. And the reason that's the case is because it's the good news that God's way is to lead us into repentance to receive forgiveness. And out of that forgiveness comes everything else God gives humanity. Because everything he gives, he gives out of that relationship of peace with us, right? And so what that means is, is that if that peace and that forgiveness comes from repentance, repentance is no less than these four things. Admitting you're absolutely wrong, changing your mind, turning around to a new direction, and pledging a good conscience towards God that you're going to continue in that way with full intention to do so. That's repentance, which includes admitting that you're wrong, <laughs> which is goes against our vain conceit. Changing our mind, which means letting go of all the ways we justify our sins so that we can feel like a good person and still basically do what we want. Actually changing our behavior so that our inveterate lusts and our like habitual passions we don't just go along with but we really want to, right? And to pledge to do it, requiring us to believe in it so we have to leave gloom behind in our depression that nothing good could possibly happen. And we need to believe that God actually wants to lead us in a good direction and that what he says is actually true. Now, if we go through this passage, there's—I want to look at five basic steps to dealing with this kind of stuff that John— Now, John the Baptist is super aggressive. He's super aggressive. And I would argue he's super aggressive because that's what we need. That's what we need for the, the way of the Lord to be prepared for us, for us to receive what he has to give us by faith. We have to have a come-to-Jesus moment. Like, we have to get to this place where the good news makes us angry and terrified, and our heart is, like, spitting, and we just are spitting mad, and, like, that has to come like a storm so it can break. Because that's the storm of all the things that make you a slave, saying they don't want to give in. And they don't go quietly. Right? So the first is, is that John tries to be really direct to that. The way of God is repentance into forgiveness. And that's, that's really the only way of God. The way to God or the way of salvation or the way to be a recipient of God's rescue is that he wants to give forgiveness. That every human conscience knows that you, have, you and I are not in agreement with the purpose for which we were made. We are humans that are not living out true humanity. We are God's creatures that are not living in line with God as creator. We're not using his creation for what he intended. We're not—I mean, we're just not doing any of that stuff. And God requires us to admit that and to be willing to be led by him away from that. 
And that's called repentance. And it's only through repentance that there is forgiveness. And that is the way of the Lord. I used to be angry about this for an additional reason. Okay, so I'm, of course I'm angry about it because I don't like to be confronted because I'm a sinner like all of us. But there's another reason, and that's because I was a wilderness leader for my first job, which meant I did rock climbing trips and whitewater kayaking and stuff like that with, um, with teenagers. And the thing I didn't like about this is I don't like the prophecy of Isaiah that every, every valley will be made high, filled in, and every mountain will be made low. Like, that sounds like a non-topographical heaven that I'm not particularly interested in in a geographical sense. You know what I mean? Like, why do that? I mean, mountains are beautiful and valleys are beautiful. And like, why would you do that? Right? And see, I don't really think that's what it means anymore. Now, it could be that I'm just coming up with a self-justifying interpretation, right? So you'll have to test this. But the picture in Isaiah 40 is of a king coming in for absolute conquest and rule. And his way is prepared before him. And the way, metaphorically, in this prophecy is a road, right? And so when an army goes into a new area because this king is king there, you have to have a road that chariots and wagons and horses and people can ride on, and that's sufficiently stately for the entrance and sufficiently safe. And so to make a road, what you have to do is you've got to fill in ravines, and you've got to break down hills enough so that you can make a road, a way, so that when the Lord comes as ruler and king, the way is already made for him. Right? And you see, when God comes as ruler and Lord, what, what, what John says in here is, is that he is going to winnow out. He's going to come as judge and savior. And so the way of the Lord being prepared is to prepare the least destructive way the king can come back. That's his way. His way is, is that, that all the people who are in rebellion against him would, would get an opportunity to be brought back to him in forgiveness through repentance so that they would be his. So that when he comes, they would hail their returning king. They would be so glad. They would—they'd be full of joy, right? Rather than dread and destruction. And so the way of the Lord is that John the Baptist would come and speak of the baptism of repentance to forgiveness. And Jesus would come and he would—he would purchase that forgiveness so that it could happen. So that we could be forgiven so that the way of the Lord would be made, so that when he comes, we'd rejoice instead of, instead of be destroyed, right? The second thing is that he's really serious about what repentance really means. Because human beings are the most self-justifying creatures in the world because that's what we use our consciousness for, and we have the most complicated minds of all the critters, right? And so one of the things we use our advanced brains and consciousnesses for is to, like, justify the stuff we want to do, right? I mean, dogs just—they just puke on your floor, and then they know you're angry, but, like, they don't explain it. They're not like, well, I ate something, and you were gone for a long time, and they don't do that, right? We do that. We're like, well— they were mean to me, and I don't feel like I was appreciated, and, right? And whenever people move towards repentance, what normally happens for people when we admit we're wrong about something, or when people confront us about something, is we'll, like, begrudgingly agree, and then do what they want for a little while. Like, do you remember, like, the last time you, like, fought with your spouse about this or a kid, and, like, they weren't really convinced, 
what you wanted to do, and you're like, I want you to take that stinking trash out, or like, could you just say hi to me when I walk in, or like, not hand me the baby the minute I walk in the door. Can, like, can we do this stuff a little bit different? And your spouse is like, okay, right? And they do it for, how long do they do it for? A day to a month usually is about, how, right? And then they like kind of revert back, and you're sort of, you're upset by that, right? That's what humans do, okay? That's what all humans do. Because we don't, we don't, we change our behavior out of fear. And once the fear is passed, we justify our behavior with our hatreds, which is us being right and people demanding too much of us. Right? And so we go back to doing what we wanted to do. And so the, your doctrine or your understanding of what repentance is has to be so rock solid that it can refute all of that nonsense that naturally goes on in the human sinful heart. And so John's like, let me give you some criteria, okay? One, you're a viper. <laughs> like, brood of vipers means your mommy and daddy were snakes, poisonous ones, and you want to kill everyone, okay? So, I mean, a viper is a very—it's not—a viper is not just a snake. It's a specific kind of snake. It's the kind of snake that has really great camouflage and likes to slither around and do its own thing with nobody paying attention to it so it can do whatever it wants. But if you confront it, like you step on it, you grab it, like it will turn on you and it will sink its fangs into you and give you the worst venom it's got so that hopefully you'll die. Okay? And that's what you're like. That's what I'm like. Okay? But for the grace of God, that's what we're like. We want to be left alone as long as people don't confront us. We can do what we want. We're nice people. We treat people nice. But man, you grab our tail. You confront us. You don't give us what we want. Man, I'm going to sink my teeth into you. The best way, with the most venom I can put in there. Just think about your last real big fight with somebody. Or think about like the thoughts you had. Like, it's like, it's like those thoughts of bitterness, those are your venom glands. Like refilling for when you get to bite the next person. Right? And, and that's what we are. Human beings are natural vipers because of the flesh, because of sinfulness. And you've got to start with realizing that, like, you're not a very good person. I mean, think about that. Do you think that—do you think that—you think John the Baptist was thinking, I'll call them vipers, and then they'll think, oh, I'm a pretty good person. Like, he didn't say, you know, he—because here's what—here's what people say. Like, I'll counsel people, and they're having terrible problems in their relationships. And they'll—and I'll say, you know, like, you really want to do that? And they'll say, you know, Nick, I know I'm not perfect. Right? You've, some of you have heard this bit before, right? And I'm like, not perfect? Are you kidding me? Like, not perfect. Okay, here's what the Bible says. You're a viper. That's what the Bible says. You're a viper. It's only by the grace of God and the joy of the gospel and the confrontation of God's holiness and the example of the beauty of Christ and a relationship with God that can like— start to file down those fangs at all. Right? Okay, the second thing is, is that repentance bears worthy fruit. Okay, so Christianity teaches that we're saved by, by grace through faith. Like, you, if you believe in Christ's death and resurrection for you, you receive God's forgiveness. And it's free. It's a completely free gift, right? And then I say, listen, um, but you, you have to, like, you know, you, like, you have to bear fruit. Like, you've got to do stuff that's good after that. And you're like, oh, wait, wait, wait. So are you, am I saved by grace or not? Okay. Here's, here's one way to think about it. You're made in God's image, which it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that you were made to image God. 
Okay, that's, that's why God gave you his image, so that you would act like him in his creation, right? And we don't, we don't do that. Okay, nothing, nothing like that, right? So there's the glory of God. There's things done on earth as they are in heaven. There's the way God would behave. And you're made in God's image so that you would act that way, and we don't act that way, okay? And God could say, here's what I want. I want you to act that way. And by that measure, we're all damned, right? That's why there has to be a Jesus, because he fulfills perfect humanity on your behalf as God himself and dies in your place as a substitution for your deserved penalty, right? But then the question is this. So then wait, why, why do I have to like bear fruit? What is the point of that? And here's the thing. It doesn't prove your divine righteousness. It proves your repentance. That's what it proves. Because if there is repentance that's real, it will always produce certain things, right? So, so, do you never do anything wrong? Right? No, you're going to do a bunch of stuff wrong. But do you have to have humility? Yes. There's no humility. There's no repentance. Right? Right? We could go through a lot of these, right? Do, do you always have to do well in a conflict? No. But do you need to go apologize and not be self-righteous and try to figure out how to bring reconciliation? Well, if you're repentant and you believe in the reconciliation of God, you're going to do that. There are things that are fruit, the fruit of the tree of repentance, right? That you can imagine two trees. There's the tree of divine righteousness, and there's the, the tree of repentance. And they, and like one is mangoes, the divine tree is mangoes, okay? And, and the other one is, like what's like a not a super great fruit? Carrots? Pear. Let, let's go with pears, Okay. Even though, man, if you've ever had a nice—okay. So, like, so the demand—like, the demand is, listen, listen, you have to bear fruit. Listen, you're not going to bear a lot of mangoes, okay? Like, you might—like, the work of the Spirit is powerful. You do have the image of God and the redemption of Jesus. He's going to do so much in you. And, like, like, the pear tree of your life is going to drop some mangoes because God is amazing, right? But, like, the thing that, like, you—you you are not repentant if the fruit isn't there is the pears. Okay? Like, there's gotta be pears. Like, if you don't have a lot of mangoes, like, okay, that's fine. But, like, there's gotta be pears. And what John is saying is, like, look, if you don't have pears, you don't have a tree, man. Like, it's not happening. Repentance hasn't happened. So, if salvation is by grace, you don't go, okay, I gotta grow some pears. No. You don't say, I gotta grow some pears. You go back to repentance, and you repent. Really. You don't try to grow pears. You ask God to help you find the willingness to, to believe and repent, and then he will grow the pears, and then he'll grow the mangoes. Right? It's a lot of fruit. Okay. The third is don't presume on God. Okay, I cannot tell you how many times I've heard people say to me, Nick, <clears throat> Christianity teaches that God is all-loving, and he's really great and forgiving and gracious— and if—and so I'm probably fine. Like, the world is a messed up place where, like, everything's a foul anyway. It's like—it's like playing hockey. Like, everything's technically illegal, but, you know, you got to kind of work it out, right? You can't fault everybody for a little hook or a little slash, right? It's the game. And, like, God is really forgiving, and so it's going to be fine, right? Okay, here's what John says. John says, don't even— Start to think in that direction 
a little. Right? He says, don't begin to think this thought. So he's talking to Jewish people. He says, he says, you guys are, here's what you're saying inside your heads. You're saying, we have Abraham as our father. Like what? Why would that help? Right? Here's why. Because God keeps his promises, right? God always keeps his promises. And he promised to Abraham that his offspring, he would redeem his offspring like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And so like there are going to be so many saved offspring of Abraham that it would fill the sky. So like he basically needs all of us, right? And so you could see these Jewish people being like, look, man, he's got— He's got to fulfill his promise. Like, there's not that many of us. He's got to fill the sky. Like, it's—he needs a lot of us. I'm going to be fine. And John's like, no, no, no. You see the rocks? You see those rocks? Okay, God can make Jews out of rocks, okay? Like, it's—it's not even hard for him. He just goes, whoop, and there's one. Like, it's so easy, right? And so— you need to be careful about your little moves of logic, especially if you know one of your great sicknesses is self-justification. Of like, well, God is nice, and God is good, therefore, whatever, his justice must take a back seat to that. Um, be really careful. Because you may not be conceiving that God can make people out of rocks if he needs to, but he is not setting aside his justice. See, the, the logic there is this. God would rather make Jewish people out of rocks than not be just about injustice and sin and hatred and all of our flesh and our unwillingness to repent. Demanding repentance from human image-bearing creatures is more important to him than letting nature take its course about getting enough Jewish people to fulfill his promises. You see, what these Jewish people didn't know was that he was going to raise up children for Abraham out of the rocks, basically. He was going to create a new nation of the people of God out of all the pagan and hated peoples of the world. Most of us aren't even Gentiles. You know what they called us? Like if you're from Africa or Europe or Western Asia, Eastern Asia, you know what we were called? Like our peoples back then? Barbarians. That's what we were. We weren't even Gentiles. Gentiles at least had a little philosophy or something, you know? Like, my people are, like, from Britain. We were still, like, running into battle, naked, painted blue, like, drunk on all kinds of peyote stuff. Right? That was too much of a mental image for you, Dan? Yeah. <clears throat> all right, so don't presume on God, right? And then the last—the th fourth thing is, he's like, don't dawdle. One of the things you need—one of the reasons why the Bible says, today is the day of salvation— is that if the human heart ever comes to a place where it can repent about anything, you need to seize the moment. Because the human heart is incredibly hard. We are hard heart. Just think, anybody, like, anybody starts to, like, tell you anything that you don't like, what's the immediate response, right? It's defensiveness, right? Super—here's why. I was actually reading a psychologist talk about this, and he, he was like, the reason why you can't just be positive with people is because the motivational strength in the human mind as it works out with the human brain is— our reaction to positive things is like one-eighth of our response to negative things. Because negative stuff has to do with our survival. And positive has to do with our pleasure in our minds. And so that's why, like, people who try to be nice, like 100% nice, they end up, like, screaming at their kids. You know what I mean? Like, they're trying to be nice, and their kids don't change their behavior at all. And then they, like, blow up at them, right? That's why you should be, like, balancedly positive and stern all the time, kind of like God is. Because you don't— you can't separate the two. 
We, are, we all have to be corrected, but the natural human response, because we're so into our survival, is defensiveness. To say, I don't like that. I'm not doing that. No, no you, can't, you can't tell me that negative thing because our sense of security is attacked by it, right? So if anything happens inside of you where your heart opens it all to respond to God's terrifying and angering good news truth-telling to you, you need to seize that moment. There's this—the older translations of this passage are, the axe is already laid at the root of the tree. Which is like the mental—when I was a kid and I read that like I was a teenager, what I pictured was you've got a tree and somebody like laid an axe next to the root, right? And I'm, I'm like, well, it's a good thing they didn't have lawnmowers then, right? Because that's, that's irresponsible. But that's, that's not what it means at all. What it means is, is that the axe is being laid by means of chopping at the root of the tree. It means that the tree is already being chopped down. Right? And then the tree's like, huh, maybe I should, maybe I should bear some fruit or something, man. This isn't good. Right? Like, John is like saying, okay, because the first use of the word for tree in that verse is plural. Because the metaphor is this, we're all trees. That's the idea. We're all trees, and we're already getting chopped down. Right? Because there's no fruit. So we're going to get thrown into the fire, and a new fruit tree is going to get planted there because we're not bearing fruit, right? And so what he's saying is he's like, look, you're already getting chopped down, man. You better put out some blossoms or something. Like, it's, like do something. Do not dawdle because this is already happening. And you're like, well, yeah, but God hasn't even come. It's like 2,000 years later. <clears throat> yes. But that's actually not the chopping down that is meant in most generations. Human beings— who harden their hearts and don't move towards God in repentance for forgiveness, their hearts harden more, right? There's a principle all through the Bible about how, like, when we turn to—every time we turn to God, our hearts soften, right? In fact, in Ezekiel, God actually says that part of salvation is God taking out of us a heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh as a divine action. That is, God acting upon us so our hearts would soften to be willing to turn towards the truth. Does that make sense? And so— when human beings don't, they continue to harden their hearts. And the more you harden your heart, the more unlikely, the more uncommonly, the more shallowly it ever opens up, it ever becomes warm, it ever is willing to hear. Right? To the point where your conscience, because every time you don't obey your conscience, it, 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 it deforms it a little bit. Right? That's why there's places in the Bible, there's a place in Romans that says anything that's not from faith is sin. The, the context there is, is that anything that's not done because you think it's the right thing to do is inherently sinful, even if it's not sinful, because it's a sin against your conscience, which is the most vital human capacity that we even have. It's our divinely given internal moral sense. And you can, you, you can never take an action that uncalibrates that. Ever. For any reason. And if you do, it starts to deform and break you down inside and harden you. Does that make sense? And if you've been doing it for a while, you need to stop doing it. You need to start listening to your conscience, and you need to start doing what it says. Because the only way 
for your heart and mind and soul and being to become one. That is the seat where they all come together. And if, you, if, you're, not, if you're not united there, you're being fractured as a being in a way that you can't function as a divine image bearer. Okay. We should move on. I did say there were five points. Okay, so the easiest place to misunderstand is you're like, okay, well, how, how do we know, like, how, what is enough fruit, right? Like, if you have to bear fruit that's worthy of repentance, how could you possibly know if that's enough? Why isn't that just another salvation by works? And he, he basically says this, the fruit of repentance is that which is connected to the character of God that you are admitting to when you repent, right? So for example, the first example he gives is, look, if you've got two coats— and there's somebody with zero coats, you should give one of your coats to that other person, right? Now, what is that the principle of, right? It's generosity, right? Now, if you repent, right, if you admit you're totally wrong, and therefore you cannot claim to deserve anything from the person that you repent to, but yet you think you're going to be okay, what are, you, what are you claiming to believe about that other person, Right? you're claiming to believe that they're profoundly generous, right? If you're like, I have nothing, I've done nothing but offend and hurt and attack you. I've done, I've not done what I was created to be, right? And you say that to God, you're like, look, I don't have a prayer. I mean, I, I got nothing to commend myself. And God gives you forgiveness and gives you his spirit and gives you salvation and gives you his love and gives you a new hope and fills you with joy, right? What you're, what you're admitting to is, is that you believe God is enormously generous, right? And so, like, if you can't give away a coat, like, you know you don't believe God is generous. You don't. You don't believe in the fundamental incredible beauty of generosity. But yet when you repented, you said you did right? And the idea here is not that you've got to give your way down to one of everything, right? Because later in Luke's gospel, Zacchaeus gives away half of his wealth. He's a very wealthy man. He's still quite wealthy. And Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus was generous, though. And what this actually is, is cuts in the other direction. What it means is even people that we would consider poor, if you've got two coats, you're rich enough to give. If you've got more food than you need right now, you've got enough to share. Because you said you believe in a God of generosity. Right? And the same thing is the noble execution of your responsibilities. So think about this for a minute. If you repented and received forgiveness, you believed you had to repent. Why did you believe you had to repent? Why wouldn't God just overlook everything? Maybe he'd just be merciful and just not do anything about it, right? You see, if you believe you had to repent, if you believe that that was necessary to, to find salvation, to avoid damnation, what you're saying is that you believe that God is absolutely a God of justice. That's what you're saying you believe. You're saying that God has caused through the work of Christ so that mercy could triumph over justice. That is, that you could still be saved even though you should be justly damned. But what you're saying is, is that in that he kept justice. It actually says in Romans 3 that in Christ, God was both just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Right? God, the whole work of salvation was so that God could be himself and so you could also become yourself. The whole work of salvation. So that 
if he was just himself and he did nothing for you, then you had to cease existing so he could stay himself. Because he's entirely beautifully just and good. And yet he wanted to keep you out of his love and compassion, which is part of his justice. And so he made a way through atonement so that he would be just and justify those who have faith in Jesus. So you believe when you repent that God is absolutely just. So then you can't do things that you know are not just. Right? So if you're a tax collector, you can collect as much as you're authorized and not a penny more. If you're a police officer, you have certain responsibilities and you can't, you can't do shakedowns and you can't accuse people falsely. And, and, it's, and whenever anybody's in power, like a tax collector or a police officer or a pastor or a politician or a boss or a business owner or anything, whenever you're in a position of power, the only way that life works is if there's this relationship of trust. Because the people who aren't in charge have to believe they don't understand everything that's going on, and the person in charge's life is more complicated than they thought, and that there's a certain amount of trust believing that you don't know everything, right? But then the person who's in charge, they've got to—they've got to steward that well. They've got to make sure they're serving the interests of the other person, and they're not indulging and in saying, well, they have to do these things for me, so I'm going to—I'm going to misuse them, right? I mean, that's— that's so fundamental to, for example, policing, right? There's like, all kinds of stuff being said in our country about that. But part of it is like, it's one of the reasons why domestic violence is such a terrible thing. Because you're supposed to be able to be alone with no witnesses with a person who's pledged to care for you. That's why we can't hardly ever do anything for people who are victims of domestic violence. Because it all happens in the sacredness of the closed area of just two people. That's why it's one of the worst things you could do, right? It's the same thing with misusing authority. And so John says, listen, if you believe God is just, which you must if you repent, you have to stop doing things that you know aren't just. Especially if it is out of the love of money, because that means you're worshiping a whole nother God, and that's a whole nother issue. Because if you repented, you believed there was only one way, and you had to come to the one true God for his real forgiveness, and you couldn't just go with another idol, and money is the normal other human idol. So everything—all the fruit of repentance is all in seed form in our repentance. When you repent, you, you, you inherently say you believe certain things about God. Now all you have to do is just go do them. We'll talk about why that's possible in a second. The fourth, and I'll go through this quickly, is that the Christ is more mighty, worthy, thorough, and unquenchable than you can imagine. Okay, so the, it says this. The people were expecting— and we're all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. And John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, and those, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to completely clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Okay, let me summarize that for you. The people ask, are you the Christ? And John answers, are you nuts? That's the answer. He's like, listen, if you think I'm the Christ, you have no—you have no conception of what God is like. You have no conception of his power. You have no conception—no no conception of his worthiness. He said, listen, the one who's going to come after me, I, like, I, like, I'm not qualified to untie his shoes. Okay, he's—he's—the one who's going to—and the first thing he says about the one who's going to come after him is that he's more powerful. And that matters. 
and that he's more worthy. Now, that's a problem if somebody's powerful and worthy. Because in Madison, one of the things, what do we like to say about power? Like dealing with power in Madison. You do what? You speak truth to power, right? Or you sing songs to power. You like speak truth to power. Here's the problem. If he's the powerful one who's also the worthy one, <laughs> there are no truths to speak to his power. <laughs> like, your gripes are wrong. There's no, like, in, in human power, like, sometimes people talk to me who are in lower positions, and they're right. And out of conscience, I have to admit they're right. And you, you can speak truth to power. You're just not going to be successful speaking truth to that power. In fact, he's the reason you can even speak truth to power. Because truth is bigger than power. Because the one who is the biggest, who is the most powerful, is the truthful one. And because the one with the most power is the truthful one, the truth matters. It matters ultimately. And therefore, if you're small, no matter how small you are, you can speak truth to power if it's true. Not just as something you like to say. If it's really true, and what you're speaking against is really false, because God is God, you can speak truth to power. But you're not going to be able to speak truth to him. That's actually not going to work. You can't escape his power, and you can't guilt him into something else. There's a, a word in the, this verse that the translations never translate, but it says his winnowing fork, which is the fork that you, you thresh with, which I'll get to in a second. He says it's in his hand, and they don't transword this word completely. It says just to clear his threshing floor. But there's actually a word in Greek, which is an adjective, modifying clear, which is an, like an absolute completeness word. Like completely. So imagine a threshing floor, which is like you've got straw, and you've got the little husks that the grain was in, and you've got the wheat, and it's all kind of on the floor. And you take this fork, and you take out all the straw— and then you put on a blanket, and you like lift it up, and you get all the other stuff to blow out, and then you've got the wheat left. But the idea here is there's a floor, and there's all this stuff on it. And Jesus, the, the Christ, is coming to this floor, and when he's done with it, there's nothing left on it. There's not one little husk. There's not one little piece of straw. There's not one little bit of grain. And so if you're his, you cannot be forgotten. There's no way you can be left on this floor. He does not lose one grain. It's all swept and wiped down. It does not look like my kitchen when my younger children clean it. Okay? That's not the image. And so what that means is, is like, there's always this kind of like tendency in the human mind to feel like you can slip through. There's always this sense like when you're in the mob, you're in the group that like somehow the gaze isn't on you. And somehow you can— you can slip through another way. And what, what John is saying is that's, that's not true. The fire is unquenchable. You can't put it out. The threshing floor is completely cleaned. There are no other options. And the one who does it is both powerful and just. You can't overpower him, and you can't escape him through any kind of logic or argument. There's no speaking truth to his power. He is the power, the power who speaks only truth. Now, the, fun, the funny thing about this is that this is the good news, right? Like, I told you that at the beginning. I said, hey, there's this—it's the good news of great joy. And then, like, I told you you were vipers and you forgot all about it, right? And you're like, Nick, this has been, like, 40 minutes of, like, you're bad and stuff. Like, how is it? But that's the thing. There are some truths. There are some good news that we need desperately that when we hear it, our first defensive reaction is to be terrified and angry. Now, I want you to know that's normal. It's not saving. It's not okay. There's a lot of things that are normal that aren't okay. You don't have to feel like you're worse than the next guy to feel like you got to change. 
Like something's got to give that you can't stay where you are. Okay, like listen, when my wife tells me I'm doing something wrong, I get defensive sometimes. Just like you, right? But that means we're both wrong. And we both need to move out. And we both need to do things better. We both need to seek God's forgiveness. We both need to repent. We both need to be plunged in the Spirit. Because it's the good news, right? Remember, it's, it's the good news of, that repentance leads to forgiveness. And it makes straight the way of the Lord so that when the King comes, it's a joyful moment for us. And through these words and lots of others, he preached the good news to them. Right? And so just so Luke made sure you knew where you stood, he gave two responses in the narrative itself, right? There is one viper. There's really technically there's two vipers, but it says that Herod, when John spoke truth to his power, right? When John talked about what he did, especially, see what happened is um, Herod had a couple of brothers and one of them had a pretty hot wife and she decided she liked him better. And so he just married his brother's wife and she ran off with him. And John was like, you're not allowed to do that. Like, there's only like 16 sexual commandments in the Bible, the stuff you can't do. And most of them are like people who are too close a relative for you to have. And most of those are not incest. They're not genetically related. They're just like, it just screws up families when you marry your brother's wife. So don't, right? And so he marries her and John's like, you can't do that. And so what he does is he— he doesn't repent, does he? He acts like a viper. When John grabs him by the tail, he wheels around and sticks those teeth in him and puts all the venom he can in him. And Herodias is just as bad, the woman, because later on she tells her daughter to ask for John the Baptist's head. And so John the Baptist is beheaded, and her head served to Herodias' daughter at her request, because these two decided to be vipers. And, and Luke is like, listen, you need to be careful. You need to be careful. Because that is all of our hearts— default. That we would hear this and we would say, I'll get you. I'll get these teeth into you. Don't you, don't you tell me I'm wrong. Don't you tell me I can't have my passions and my lusts that I want to do what I want with. Don't you, don't you tell me that I have to be, I have to believe in something when I'm safe in the hatred and fear of my gloom and despondency. Don't you, don't you take, don't you take that limp from me, right? And you can't do that. But there is one who before this moment already performed perfect humanity on your behalf in repentance and baptism, though he had nothing to repent of and didn't need to be baptized. Right? It says that Jesus, when everybody else was being baptized, he himself came and was baptized. And when he came out of the water, the Holy Spirit came down upon him while he was wet, right? He was baptized in the Spirit. And God said, this is my son whom I love, who I am pleased with. Very pleased with. And he did that so that you would know exactly what forgiveness means there. That when we repent and believe, and when we're forgiven and baptized, that baptism, John says, look, I just plunge you into the water. But the one who comes after me is going to plunge you into the Holy Spirit. His own divine power, his own very self, his own being in the person of the Spirit will be in you and with you and strengthening you and empowering you. Like, he's going to help you with the pears, man. Like, you don't think it's going to work. It's going to work. And as he works, it's going to be pears, and then it's going to be pears and mangoes. And pretty soon it's going to be like pears and mangoes and like all kinds of great stuff. Because 
With forgiveness comes regeneration and salvation in the presence of the Spirit and the work of God and the example of Christ and everything we need for life and godliness. And it's right there for you. And so if you're a Christian, it may be that you have departed from a repentant heart, right? Martin Luther used to say, all of life is repentance. A softened heart and a heart that comes close to God that can know the will of the Spirit and walk with it and have an alivened conscience is a constantly repenting heart. If when I said you were a viper that, that, made, that got, made you a little angry, that means you started to think you're a good person, right? Don't think that. Think that you are the one whom God says, this is my son, whom I love, with whom I'm well pleased. What more does it matter if you're a good or bad person after that? Think that, right? And embrace to fight the viper within and to turn to the God who forgives and to embrace what he's called us to in repentance. Because he will help you repent and he will plunge you in his spirit and he will walk with you every moment. And you will have fruit bearing with repentance. And you will rejoice to see the king when he comes down his straight way. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as a people, we would be in love with repentance. We, 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 that when we feel the anger and the, the fear rising in us, when we're confronted with the truth. God, I pray that you would put an increasing reflex in us by your spirit to embrace the truth immediately and to throw off our fear and our anger and our hatreds. And let the joy of the truth, the freedom that it promises, come to us. And help us to not, not to dawdle and not to presume, but work in us by your Spirit so we would produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And help us to know how freely you plunge us into your Spirit. And how powerful a thing it is when we come to be baptized in water to show our repentance towards you and that you respond by pouring out your spirit on us. Help us to have faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we respond?